You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, if you have Bibles, we are going to be in Psalm 82 this morning. Psalm 82, Psalms is about in the middle of your Bible, and specifically if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles that Elise mentioned a little while ago, page 492 is where you can find Psalm 80, 82. In many ways, uh, it is far easier to be a Christian in private than it is to be a Christian in public. Uh, it's easier to pursue faithfulness within the, the relative safety, the relative privacy of our own homes, or maybe even to create a small type of Christian fortress that extends slightly beyond our home uh, and includes our, our church family and, and maybe our circle of friends or perhaps our educational institutions. But in order to be God's people in the world, we have to be in the world. It requires exactly that. Uh, not in a fortress, not isolated in that way, and not only a Christian in private. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a pastor in Germany during the rise and then the rule of the Third Reich. And he is most famous, if you know anything of his story, he's most famous for his involvement in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Uh, that plot was discovered, it failed. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was discovered and, and executed uh, just before the end of, of World War II. But Bonhoeffer had this to say about Christians who retreat to what he called private virtuousness. Bonhoeffer said this, Such people neither steal, nor murder, nor commit adultery, but they must close their eyes and ears to the injustice around them. Only at the cost of self-deception can they keep their private blamelessness clean from the stains of responsible action in the world. In other words, as Christians, it's easy, it can be easy for us to think that as long as we are avoiding the sins of commission, the wrong things that we're not supposed to do, as long as we're avoiding those that we're doing well. But Bonhoeffer is saying here that, that the sins of omission, the good that we are supposed to do when we neglect it, that's self-deception. We, we feel like we're missing something really important because we are. We're called to live lives of, of quiet devotion. It's a matter of integrity that we are as faithful in private as we are in public. And there are some tragic examples of people that live as Christians externally, publicly, but their, their internal life, their home life is so inconsistent with that. But we're not only called to live faithful lives in private. The outward expression, the public expression of our faith is also essential. Last week, if you were here with us, we talked about showing mercy to the fatherless, creating margin in our lives specifically so that we can show mercy to vulnerable people. But what I hope you see this morning is that we're not only called to show mercy, but we're called to pursue justice for the fatherless. In, in our world, many children are victims of injustice. And as we're commemorating the Sanctity of Life Sunday, many are victims of abortion, but also victims of abuse or neglect or abandonment, victims of divorce, or even more broadly, victims of a society that doesn't really value children. A society which, as Russell Moore once put it, sees children at best as a commodity to be contained and at worst a nuisance to be controlled. 
In other words, showing justice to the fatherless means being comprehensively pro-life, comprehensively pro-children, pro-families. It means calling out the injustices against children that are playing out in our world and then doing whatever it is in our power to do to combat and to correct those injustices. This morning, as I mentioned, we're going to look at Psalm 82. Uh, This psalm is sometimes classified as a psalm of lament because, as you'll hear, the the author of this psalm, Asaph, is grieving at the injustice that he's seeing play out around him. But actually, I really like the way one particular scholar described this psalm. He called Psalm 82 a prophetical hymn. A prophetical hymn. A musical prayer, in other words, which confronts injustice. So I invite you to listen to it now uh, and listen to it with open ears as I read from Psalm 82. A psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Verse 8, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we ask now by the power of your spirit that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open our ears that we may hear what you would speak to us. Open our minds that we may understand something of what it means to revere you. Open our hearts that we may grasp the treasures of wisdom and knowledge once hidden in Jesus Christ. And then open our mouths that we may proclaim the mystery of the gospel and that we may proclaim it boldly as we should. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. Well, as you heard, Psalm 82 compares and contrasts the one true God, capital G, and the gods, lowercase g. So let's use the rest of the time that we have together this morning to look at these two things. The justice of God, that's the capital G one, and the injustice of gods, lowercase g. The justice of God, the injustice of gods. First, the justice of God. And before we we really go any further, let's just pause and define justice. Because it's a word that gets used a lot in the the cultural moment that we inhabit. It's important for us to clarify what we mean. There There are different definitions out there. The Bible's definition of justice is moral uprightness. Moral uprightness, doing what is right. Or, Or similarly, related to that, justice means giving people what they are due. So notice right from the bat here, justice is not primarily a political question. It's a theological one. It's a theological one. If justice is about giving people what they are due, we have to take a step back and first ask, well, what are people due? What even are people? And therefore, what kinds of rights, what kinds of treatment is due to them? And in order to answer that question, we need both Genesis chapter 1 and Romans chapter 1. 
Genesis chapter 1, people are image bearers of God. They are created by God in his own image. And therefore, just simply in light of that incredible reality, people are due all dignity and all respect and all love. But we don't just live in a, in a Genesis 1 world. We also live in a Romans 1 world where we take what God has revealed, we take that image of God in us and corrupt it. We take what God has revealed and suppress it. We end up not only committing morally wrong, reprehensible things ourselves, but as the Apostle Paul writes there in Romans 1, but giving approval to others who do the same. And as the Apostle Paul continues there in Romans 1, that subjects us to God's wrath. The due penalty, as he says it there, the due, what do we do? The due penalty for our suppression of truth and rebellion against him is his wrath. So if justice means giving people what they are due, what are people due? Both dignity and damnation. Dignity and damnation. Genesis 1, dignity. Romans 1, damnation. So whenever we talk about justice, we, we desperately need God to be God. We desperately need God to be God and not to try to play God ourselves. The stakes are really high. Human beings are image bearers. Human beings are also traitors. And in the convoluted mess of that, do we really think that we're up to the task of meeting out justice based on our own definitions and our own understanding? Do we really think that we're up to deciding what is morally right, deciding what someone is due on our own? And this is why Asaph bookends Psalm 82 with the God of justice. The God of justice. Verse 1, God is holding court. He takes his seat to, to judge among the divine council. If we were to keep reading a few Psalms later, Psalm 89, we would read that the foundations of God's throne are righteousness and justice. That throne that he sits on to, to judge, that throne he sits on to rule and reign, it is founded on justice. God alone can be trusted with the ultimate responsibility of enacting justice, of giving people what they are due. And then the, the bookend of the Psalm, verse 8 Asaph writes, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. He's saying there that at the end of the day, God is going to bring justice. God will inherit all of the nations. All that we see, all of that already does belong to him, but he will bring the fullness of his kingdom to bear in it. Now, like all the, the Psalms, like all of the Old Testament, these words are anticipating the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Justice is a, is a huge if not sometimes neglected aspect of what Jesus came into the world to accomplish. He came to satisfy God's justice against sin. He came to rescue sinners like me, sinners like us, from the damnation we were due, the damnation we deserve. God's justice against our sin was poured out on Jesus instead. Praise God. And so all that is left for us is mercy and grace. Our dignity, that, that image of God that was given to us is fully restored in Jesus. But Jesus remains the agent of God's justice. As much as he came into the world to enact the love of God and the grace and the mercy of God, he also comes to enact God's justice. And we read, for example, in places like Psalm 2, that Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And we read in 1 Corinthians 15 that God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. And we read in Revelation chapter 11 that in the end, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. 
And John writes there that, and he will reign forever and ever. So God is the God of justice. And he, is, he judges with justice now. And on the day when Jesus returns, he establishes a completely just kingdom on earth, even as it is now just in heaven. All of that to say, all of that to say, do not be afraid of the word justice, Christian. Do not be afraid of the word justice. If you're a Christian who dismisses any mention of the word justice as something that just politically liberal or woke people care about, a talking point of the political left, recognize how significant, how central a biblical theme, a biblical concept justice is. Justice is central to the character and the nature of God. It is the foundation of his throne. And he is the only one capable of defining or meeting out ultimate justice. But as he does that in every age, he is calling his people to care about justice too, to show justice. Over and again in scripture, God rebukes, and you heard Jenna share this this morning from Isaiah, he rebukes his own people for their surface level attempts at private virtuousness while neglecting to actually enact his justice in the world. Another example besides that Isaiah one, Micah chapter six, he has shown you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Well, it's actually, Micah says, not all of the sacrifices in the empty religious ritual, but to do justice. Or Isaiah 58, is this not the fast that I choose? And it's not about sackcloth and ashes and looking miserable because you're not eating. It's doing justice. It's loosing the bonds of wickedness. It's letting the oppressed go free. Or Proverbs 21, verse 3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And then bring it into the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. And it's not just the private virtuousness. It's to, do, it's to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we talked last week about showing mercy to the vulnerable, mercy for the fatherless. What you need to see this morning is that we are also called to show justice, to give the fatherless what they are due, according to God's definition. As with all matters of justice, that is complicated. We are due, all of us human beings, we are due dignity and we are due damnation. And so left to ourselves, every single one of us would overemphasize one of those things and underemphasize or completely neglect the other. So thankfully, in his kindness, God does not leave us to ourselves to figure this out. And, and even here in Psalm 82, he reveals something of what justice entails. What does that actually mean? Although here it's revealed through a negative example, through the injustice of, of others. And so having seen the justice of God, second, let's talk about the injustice of God's. A couple of times in this psalm, hopefully you heard it as we read it earlier, verses 1 and verse 6, Asaph refers to the gods, lowercase g, gods. And there's quite a bit of debate about who exactly these gods are. Are they other heavenly beings? Are they demonic powers? Are they human rulers? I'm going to spare you the, the details uh, of that debate this morning, but because of the way Jesus himself quotes verse 6, in the Gospel of John chapter 10, Jesus picks up that verse, verse 6 of Psalm 82, and he quotes it. And because of the way he quotes it, I'm convinced that the gods in Psalm 82 are human beings. 
And specifically, the people of God. The people of God. The psalmist is addressing Israel, the people of God, and specifically its rulers. And the psalmist Asaph here is saying, God is the God of justice. As sons of the Most High, as sons of God, or lowercase g, gods, his people are meant to enact the Father's justice in the world. The problem is, as we heard, they're not doing that. They're not doing that. They're robbing vulnerable people of what they are due. They are acting, they are leading with injustice. Before we get into some of the the specifics of that, just a quick note about how this applies to us. I really hope you already know this, but it's important to reiterate over and over again as we make our way through the Old Testament. America is not Israel. Hard stop. You will go, you'll do crazy things with the Bible if you don't get that point. America is not Israel. Pennsylvania is not Israel. Through the work of Jesus Christ, thanks be to God, God's people are no longer a single nation state. We are a new humanity from every tongue and tribe and nation in the world. Through Jesus, promises then given to Israel in the Old Testament very often are applied to the church, capital C Church, in the New The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians, for example, that if we belong to Jesus, we are Abraham's offspring. We are sons of Abraham. Not biologically, of course, but spiritually and in a very real way. And Paul continues to write there, not only are we Abraham's sons, but we are sons of God. Sons of God, heirs according to the promise. So the commands that God gives to Israel to show justice to pursue, to, to, to redeem, to restore a just society. They apply, at least in principle, to the church. They apply, at least in principle, to followers of Jesus in every age and in every place. We don't take every Old Testament law and assume that it is binding for us in exactly the same way that it was for Israel. There are some important differences, and it gets convoluted to work our way through it, but we certainly do not write off the law of God either. So there's a lot more we could say about that for today. I, it's, enough, it's enough for us simply to see that Jesus' followers are meant to be people of justice. It's not just a command for Israel. It applies to the church today too. And in Psalm 82, as he is rebuking the people of God for their injustice, Asaph actually gives us four aspects of what it means, of what showing justice entails. Each of these uh, before I get into him, has a, has a broader application, a much broader application than this. But as we just have a brief amount of time this morning to walk through them, I'm going to try to flesh out some specific applications that, that have to do with justice to the fatherless. There's broader applications, but we'll just focus in on those today. So the first one is there in verse 2. Justice means not showing partiality to the wicked. Not showing partiality to the wicked. Uh, here's the thing. Very few people wake up in the morning thinking, how can I perpetrate injustice today? Very few people want to consciously be on team injustice. It's not a goal that many of us have when we set about in our lives. Thaddeus Williams says it this way, no one is pro-injustice. No one waves boo justice or hooray oppression signs. We all like to believe we're on the right side of history. We can't all be right. He goes on to say, the difference between those who do justice and those who merely think they do comes down to the question of truth. In other words, none of us, nobody in this world wants to be on team injustice. 
But at the end of the day, some of us are. Some of us are. We have a proclivity to side with the wicked, to show partiality, to show deference and preferential treatment to the wicked. Now, the wicked, especially in Psalms, are those who oppose God and his purposes. People who oppose God and his purposes. And yet, what we're reading here is that the people of God are inclined to side with them. Why? Well, maybe it's because they have money or influence or celebrity. Maybe it's because their lives look so much easier than the way God calls us to live faithfully. Or maybe it's because we just desperately want their approval. We want to be liked. We want to be lauded and applauded by people that have those positions of power. Whatever it is, we are prone to show partiality to the wicked. And I want to ask you this morning, where might you be prone to that? Where might you be prone to that? There are a lot of, in this moment culturally, there are a lot of rich, powerful people in our society. People who, in many cases, have overtly made it clear they want nothing to do with God. They want nothing to do with the design of God. And they have very different definitions of justice. So instead of of protecting unborn life, the definition of justice is now protecting choice. Instead of fostering or adopting unwanted children or children that coming, are coming from unplanned, unexpected pregnancies, justice now means it's more loving, it's more just to exterminate those lives, to kill those children before they're born. Instead of a lifelong covenant between one husband and one wife, marriage, in our, in our definition of justice broadly, culturally, is just a slightly more committed form of dating. And so therefore, divorce really is not that big of a deal. Who cares if that leaves just a massive amount of children without both parents in their home? A massive amount of children fatherless. And instead of being a a blessing from God, children are viewed as a commodity or a nuisance or even a necessary evil. And I want you to consider this morning, are you inclined to agree with any of that? When it comes to pursuing justice, we do not want to find ourselves in opposition to the God who helps and defends the fatherless and the widow. The the wicked, people who want nothing to do with God, people who, at least in this cultural moment, struggle to even agree or coherently define what a woman is, are insisting that a woman's right to choose is the ultimate expression of justice. And I would say to you this morning, do not show them partiality. Do not show partiality to the wicked. Second, verse three, we must give justice to the weak and the fatherless. And and this is where it becomes especially clear that justice is primarily a theological issue and not a political one. If justice is giving people what they are due, I just would invite you to consider this this morning. The only reason to treat weak and vulnerable people, fatherless people well, is if they have value, is if they have dignity and worth. If you have a secular Darwinian view of the world, if you have a survival of the fittest mentality, then justice to the weak and the fatherless actually means to let them die. The the modern abortion movement is rooted in eugenics. It's rooted in eugenics. Margaret Sanger founded Planned Parenthood, not with these cases of rape and incest in her mind, but with eugenics in her mind. Planned breeding. Her goal was to wipe out the weak to severely curtail the birth rate of racial minorities, to purify, from her definition of the word, the human race. In her mind, that was the right thing to do. That was the just thing to do. 
In her mind, racial minorities, people with mental and physical disabilities, they're not the fittest. They're not the weak. And so they should hurry up and die and get out of the gene pool. Now, on the other hand, if people are image bearers of God, they have been imparted with incomparable dignity and worth. If simply by being human, they have been crowned with some of God's own glory and splendor and majesty, Psalm 8, then they are due so much more than death or exploitation. If you're here this morning and you're, you're not a Christian, but you are someone who appreciates justice, you want people to be treated with dignity and worth, I am so glad you feel that way. I am so glad that you care about that and that you think about that. I just would submit to you this morning that you owe your appreciation of justice to some deeply embedded Christian principles, whether you see or acknowledge that or not, that you did not just arrive at a care for people that are weak and vulnerable. The the problem is that we live in a day where people want to keep emphasizing justice without any foundation underneath it, without any any real reason for it. We want a just society, but without a God-centered view of the world, without a, a deeply held theological conviction that people are made in God's image. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Without the foundation, the building will collapse And in many ways, what we're seeing in this moment is that it has collapsed. It has collapsed. Third, it's also in verse three. Justice means maintaining the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Here's a really important question. When you think about a just society, is your role to create it or to maintain it? Is it your job, is it my job to create justice? The key word in verse 3 is maintain. Maintain. We are not creating rights for vulnerable people. Why not? Because in the good design of God, they already have them. They already have them. Creating justice is the role of God alone. And if we start to think we can create a more just society than him, if we start to think we can come up with a better design, we will turn around and with horrific speed perpetrate injustice in another direction. 50 years ago today, January 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court ruled in Roe versus Wade. And in an attempt to create justice, truly, that's what it was. It was to create a constitutional right to abortion or even reproductive justice, as it's been termed more recently. It enabled what is perhaps the most horrific injustice of our time. Over these 50 years, 63 million babies in America, 63 million image-bearing lives have been exterminated, have been wiped out. And it was all in the name of creating justice. If life begins at conception, which everyone agrees with until that pregnancy is unwanted, if life begins at conception, if life is created in the image of God, then in the just and good design of God, every unborn child already has every single right he or she needs. It's already there. Our job is to maintain those rights. Our job is to restore those rights where justice has been perverted. The Dobbs decision this past June was an incredible step in the right direction. It's the result of years of action and prayer among many people. But I would offer to you this morning, it is just a new starting point. It's just a new starting point. If anything, the months since have revealed just how much work remains, particularly at the heart level, at the mind level of the people that we cross paths with every day 
in our lives. Where, where abortion is not just illegal, but, but unthinkable. That's going to require years and years of prayers and labor from this point forward. Fourth and finally, verse four, justice means rescuing the weak and the needy and delivering them from the hand of the wicked. I want to ask you this morning, who is more weak and needy than an unborn child? Who's more weak and vulnerable than that? In this cultural moment, there's a lot of emphasis on giving a voice to the voiceless. How is it? How is it that the literal voiceless, one who cannot yet utter a word for himself or herself, is excluded from so many people's circle, so many people's definition of justice? If you consider yourself an advocate for justice, if you consider yourself a justice-minded person, you have to care about this. If you care about women, if you care about people who have disabilities, if you care about racial disparities, you will care about the way abortion sacrifices the weak and the needy to the hands of the wicked. Legislation, maintaining and restoring just laws, that's a huge part of it. But as we've talked about for years, ever since we began the church, we've talked about this, as we've talked about today, and we'll talk about more this month and this whole year, it has to be more than, than the legislation too. Rescuing and delivering the weak and needy means we care for both widows and orphans. Both vulnerable women, you heard Sandy and Ginny talk about that, and vulnerable children. Rescuing and delivering means that we care for the poor. Because a lot of women, a lot of couples facing unplanned pregnancies cite that as one of the major reasons they're considering an abortion. Rescuing and delivering means considering foster care or adoption. Or if that's not going to happen in your family, to come alongside families who are doing that and being part of their their care community, helping them do that. Rescuing and delivering means caring for people in all kinds of circumstances where they feel like abortion is their only option. And it means caring for people after they've had an abortion too. And if you're here this morning and that's you, that's part of your life, that's part of your story, I want you to know that you are loved here, that you are welcomed here in this place with with these people. In the hands of the wicked, you will be told to celebrate and to shout your abortion. But among the people of God, you can receive love and you will be invited as each of us are invited every single time we gather in this place. You will be invited to repent of the ways that you've run from God, to receive the grace and the forgiveness that every single one of us so desperately needs in whatever specific ways we need it. Like each of us, weak and needy as you are, you too can be rescued and delivered. You need not be subject to the hands of the wicked who would who would lead you into even worse places in your life. You are welcome here. You are loved here. Men and women, at the end of the day, we are all perpetrators of injustice. All of us. Made in God's image, made to embody and to enact his justice. We suppress the truth and we rebel against him instead. And so if justice means giving us what we are due, we are this mess of being due dignity and damnation. So thanks be to God, this world stands forever on his justice and not ours. He is the one who takes his seat in the divine council. He is the one whose throne is founded on justice. He is the one who will inherit the nations. He is the one whose will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And thanks be to God, his justice has been satisfied in Jesus. The the, the damnation that we were due 
was poured out on him instead. And our advocate with our father, our advocate right now in this moment is none other than Jesus Christ, the righteous, Jesus Christ, the just. See friends, our efforts to show justice can never save us, but the God of justice can. And in Jesus, he has, he has. So because you have been weedy, needy and weak as you are, because you have been rescued and delivered by a just God, let us uphold and embody his justice in this world. Let us be people who give justice to the fatherless. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we ask by the power of your spirit that you would now give us strength to live out this message that we have heard. We ask that you would help us to see, even at this table, that justice has been satisfied in Jesus and that we can now be people who uphold your justice in this world. Thank you for rescuing and delivering us in our need, in our weakness. Help us to be people who do the same for others in this world. We pray all of that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.